Hello, it's Ryan. This episode is going to be a tiny bit different as we experiment with the format some. It's mainly the topic and the guys reviewing it that are kind of at issue. I'm more familiar with science and Harlan's, you know, more of a, you know, has more of a background in analytical philosophy. And we're taking on a continental philosopher's work. So we're adding, I'm adding some narration at times in the hopes of adding clarity. But we'll see. On with the show! Boop. Boop. Badoo. <laughs> what? Joe Rogan. Who's Again. that? Is he still doing podcasts? I mean, he's, he's declined in recent years, but... I noticed our old friend Brett Weinstein has started his own podcast, too, now. Everybody's got a podcast. <laughs> too bad they all suck. Yeah. Except this one. Yeah. And what is this one? The Doddler's Philosophy, Philosophy Podcast. podcast. Oh. <laughs> it's like we got an announcer. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Uh, do you want to... Uh, I'm... All right. I'm Ryan. <laughs> Hurting others is an unexpected choice, McKenna. I thought you were going to say is an unexpected joy. <laughs> It is, actually. And I'm Harland Chaotic First Sip Grant. And we already said who we were. And we're this Dollar's Flash Packet. talk about tonight we are going to talk about jacques derrida's ontology it is spooky yes it is it's a halloween episode yes this is the halloween episode folks <laughs> <laughs> yeah we we do all the holidays uh and we wanted to scare the audience by having the quote-unquote scientist Tell us about Derrida. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's a it's a funny one because it plays right into the hands of the actual concept itself. But I'm not quite sure where to start. Uh, <laughs> and that might make sense later on. I don't know. Okay, first intrusion. Up ahead, I'm attempting to give some background. Like, how do we get to Derrida and ontology? Frankly, I don't know. Like, if you take ontology seriously enough, my understanding is that one will never know. One can never really know the origin of something. But that isn't really helpful, of course, to a podcast. What I'm attempting to formulate is that Derrida is one of those scholars who found lacking the, 20th, the early 20th century's linguistic structuralism research program. And from his critique, Derrida ended up establishing his own program, Deconstruction. Deconstruction formed the basis for much of Derrida's thinking, and when it came to other domains like metaphysics and sociocultural dynamics, his answer was ontology. But the source texts have no basic definition, no paraphrastic replacement function, if you listened to the last episode. You know, it's got no definition that at least has yet to satisfy me at least. So the discussion continues. So yeah, Jacques Derrida is a French philosopher, kind of got going in the 60s, 1960s. And he is one of the people who could be categorized as a post-structuralist or post-modernist. I think postmodernism is the larger 
term, umbrella term, and post-structuralism is something a little more specific. And, and it, it, of course, is post, so it's after or whatever. And the idea being that it's in response to structuralism. And, uh, you know, this is how this works. It's like when I, we were talking about in the last episode where you're looking up a word in the dictionary and then you look up a word that's in the definition for that word and then you just keep, you know, and you're getting like round all over the place. But I figure I might as well just at least show up and try and, in the quote-unquote scientists, try and talk about some of these things a little bit. Not a lot, just a tiny. But structuralism is in particular, I think, for Derrida's focus was this sort of linguistic structuralism that uh, I want to say, I don't have it written down for some reason because, well, I did a lot of like reading and not a lot of thinking (laughs) and not a ton of writing. Saucer, is that his last name or is it? uh, Oh, I've heard it pronounced Swasser, I think. Okay. Something like that. Something like that. And he was all into this linguistic structure being kind of the the basis upon which culture, human cultures are generated and things like that. Um, and he's concerned about how like, you know, utterances and words and whatnot relate to each other. And his big thing was something called the signifier and signified sort of binary oppositional type of thing. Um, for the most part, it was at least sort of, there was a signifier, like some kind of, usually some kind of sound pattern. And then the signified would be, you know, the, the meaning of the thing or whatever. We kind of covered this with definition of definition a little bit. And Harland has his own sort of, I think, protest to this type of approach a little bit. I think, I don't know. I'm lost. (laughs) Ah. Anyway, um, but it, you know, that there's just there's yeah there's some sort of structure that underlies human culture, and it's at least the Swasir, whatever his name is, he uh, was one of those people who was kind of pushing for. If he wasn't specifically identifying himself as a structuralist, others that came along after him kind of were, and that there's some sort of linguistic structure that has a big say in culture, whatever. That's not what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> it's, uh, um, but it, just in general, as I understand, I think linguistic structuralism or whatever is kind of quote unquote dead. But structuralism as a approach or whatever is not, it's still sort of alive and well and say like the social sciences and things like that. Political science, that sort of thing. You itching to say okay. anything? <laughs> So anyway, post-structuralism is sort of a kind of response, at least as it's been the created the the bin of that, and it's Derrida is one of those players who's kind of critiquing some of these the basis of things like binary opposition, privileging speech over writing, all that kind of stuff, and um, you know he came up with this uh, literary analysis or textual analysis called deconstruction. And ultimately what it tried to do was sort of uh, show that there wasn't really any meaning and that there really isn't any truth with respect to, you know, uh, the words we use and how they relate to each other. It's that kind of thing. I know I'm butchering it, but um, if you wanted to jump in, I don't know if you know it very well. Or... Yeah, the problem for me coming in to save the day here is that this cadre of continental philosophers is in the on the dark side of the moon for me, who has spent much more time reading Quine and Sellers and Wittgenstein, you know, the analytic folks at the same time, and I haven't gotten into these people enough. So, unfortunately, without having prepared, mm. I can't uh, really come in and give my version of these things. So we'll be relying on the, the mechanic quote-unquote scientist. For yeah. at least the version today. I will provide some unexpected choices today, I suppose. Um, 
and and this is not to go on and on about postmodernism and you know a critique of meta narratives and all that shit. Um, but you know that was sort of the crappy background I have to offer for where we're going here. Um, but there's this idea of hauntology that um, Derrida came up with, and it is very much sort of a metaphysical, it says roots in metaphysics, you know? Uh, I guess the first part then that I'm sort of going at here is, I guess I would consider it a metaphysical hauntology, which is sort of the, there's this idea of the absent present in the world. So hauntology itself is a play off of the metaphysical study of being or presence ontology. And um, the idea is that hauntology naturally springs out of like something like uh, deconstruction where some of the tools that deconstruction would use to try and analyze the texts would be to say, um, argue in favor of the idea that every time you have the word, say, woman, it's not like you don't have some actual comparison for that word. So nothing stands alone on itself. So woman doesn't stand alone. There's man out there. Or something like, you know, normal, and then there's abnormal. Those kinds of things are always kind of there. So it's it's always in reference to other things. And is it always binary, or is there no, some t- no? No, I wouldn't okay. say that it was always binary, but I think that's a a useful heuristic or tool or example set to use is to just you know make it simple. Mm-hmm. And anyway, the notion is that there is something that isn't there, but yet kind of is there. You know, in the thinking of the you know the user or in the um, the actual you know whole set of words that one would use you know we we might think when we're trying to find a word we think in terms of synonyms but we might also think in terms of antonyms or metononyms or whatever (laughs) uh you know uh anyway so uh, metonyms i think that's actually what it is anyway i'm like god damn it fucking up again so anyway the idea uh with ontology you know and i'll give some other ways that people other because that's the thing about Derrida is that he doesn't land anywhere. He doesn't say like, okay, hauntology is, and he just like gives you hauntology. Other people then go back and go, hauntology is this or hauntology is that or whatever. But everybody's trying to summarize what this one guy is doing or talking about. And essentially, uh, sort of Derrida's metaphysical concept that represents a uh, temporal and ontological disjunction. It's uh, also been said as a deferred non-origin within grounding metaphysical terms such as history and identity. And that was by these two guys. Uh, And I'd have to go to Wikipedia right now, but because of our arrangement, I can't have my fucking computer in front of me. But it's Scott and somebody else. Anyway, you can go to Wikipedia. It's there. It's sort of like a metaphysics of... Not absence necessarily, sort of, but it's like an absent present. You know, it's the thing that's there, but it's not. And that's this idea of the spectra or a specter, the the revenant, the ghost, the apparition. It sort of haunts your present. Okay, I was going to ask about this presence, if it, and maybe it's both, and that's perhaps the point. Do you mean present as in past, present, future? the here and now, or do you mean presence as in presence, absence? It's both. here or yeah, it's somewhere. It's, it's here or it's not here. Both. It's both. Uh-huh. Temporal and ontological disjunctions or whatever. So it can go along one axis, but it can also go on these other uh, dimension, dimensional axes or whatever you want to call it. So present absent in the sense, in the ontological sense, is like the deconstructionist complementary pair, man-woman, or whatever. Anytime you talk about one, you bring in the other. So anytime something is identified as ontologically present, then 
it somehow has an echo of ah, but what if it weren't? Or maybe sometimes it's not, or of its absence. And then, in the temporal version, is that something more like uh, the the fleetingness of time? What Whitehead called the perpetual perishing. That any time you have a now, it's any time you reference it or think about it, it's already gone. It's is it that kind of notion, or what no. is the temporal one? The uh, the example that I liked, which was provided at least to me by this guy who's got a YouTube channel, calls it Cuck Philosophy, is if you think of a melody, like you're listening to a melody, you get each note at a time in a melody, let's just say. Forget about harmonies or chords or anything like that. And, um, you know, la, 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 you get each one of those notes. Now, if you're familiar with that melody, then on the one hand, you in order to get the whole full context, you know, as each note arrives, you actually kind of are giving it, uh, you know, and you're embedding it within a set of notes. And so you're thinking of the note that came before. But then if you're familiar enough with the melody, then you'll also be anticipating the next note. Um, and it's that's just sort of like a metaphor example type thing to say, like this is sort of the idea with respect to the temporal kind of disjunction, the idea that the the previous note and the next note from the note that's being played now haunt that note. You know, it's sort of they're there in a way, but they're not there because all that really is being heard, at least with your actual sense organs or whatever, is the note, you know, that kind of thing. So the previous and successor notes, could we say, are ontologically absent, but hauntologically present. That would be really nicely... Yeah, I like that a lot. That's the kind of the point? Yeah. That they're haunt, so. every note is haunted by, its, by the rest of the melody that it's a part mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the general background to all of this was the fall of the Berlin Wall. This uh, Derrida gave a lecture that happened over two days. It was a multinational, multi, you know, interdisciplinary um, uh, uh, conference. I think it it was maybe UC Davis. Again, I, if I could just look at my computer, but I won't. But basically, that's the idea. Um, someplace, maybe it was Irvine. Something. Anyway, it was one of the schools in the University of California. Uh, I won't say district, but I want to say something. Anyway, um, the word haunts the word I just <laughs> Um And he gave this lecture called Specters of Marx. And it was in a way his sort of, his response. So he was kind of a reactionary type guy, I guess. His reaction to the the political scientist Francis Fukuyama's, uh, you know, a book that explored this idea of the end of history, because uh, the end of history was really sort of this notion that communism had failed, the Soviet Union was falling apart, and capitalism was going to win the day, and we would just be capitalists from now on, because we won, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, the the sentiment amongst many people at this Wither Marxism conference was uh, that, on the one hand, they were kind of mourning the loss of the potential for Marx, Marxism, not necessarily communism, but Marxism. But also they were, at least with respect to Derrida, the idea is that this won't necessarily go away. Like, So you can't just be happy with like, oh, okay, it's a big linear line. It's more like a ever cycling on itself type of thing. If I was a Derrida scholar, I'd tell you all about references to Hamlet and other, you know, things and whatnot, but uh, I'm not. <laughs> no, that's fine. We can stick to this one central idea. Is there a, do you have any familiar contemporary examples or ways to talk about it like obama's haunting trump or whatever yeah i mean that would be definitely part of it i think the succession of presidents always haunts in a way the previous 
administration haunts the next one. And maybe to an extent, whoever, you know, we anticipate, we're all anticipating something, but that sort of moves into this. So the other one's sort of the more metaphysical one where you're kind of abstracting out and you're, I mean, he's, you know, you're trying to push off, but then you're always using these kind of more or less concrete type real world example type things. Um, you know, he talks about uh, when he's in the Specters of Marx lecture, he talks about, oh, and by the way, this is like 1993. Um but he kind of goes on about like, you know, Marxism or the sort of communist manifesto and talking about commodities and, you know, different kinds of values that we place on a thing that can be bought or sold. And so he's, you know, he's often talking about the use value of something versus like the, you know, the exchange value or whatever it would be. So I have a cup and you have a book and do we think those have a similar type of value? But, um, the idea would be that regardless of what it is, where do you start in this, uh, you know, way of looking at the world? So you have a commodity, you got a cup, but is the it has to have like a first, right? It has to have a first uh, value set. So that would be say then, is the exchange value or the market value what you are going to think the use value is of the thing? And then only once you've sold it, and meaning sell, I could sell you it by telling you how great it's going to be. Is this cup is so good? You're going to never get, burn your hand on it when you hold it, you know, hot liquids in it or whatever. Then you get, you're like, oh yeah, use value. And then you have it on your table and it's got the hot coffee or whatever it is in it. Then it has all of a sudden it's use value, this commodity of the cup or whatever the fuck. And, uh, but you know, the idea is like, well, how do you know what you're doing in terms of the the market value versus the use value? I'm sort of telling you the use value in order to actually also give you a sense of what the market value is for it. It's just nothing's ever quite a perfect linear succession in a way. And I think that's sort of a big part of hauntology is that these things haunt each other. And when as soon as you are trying to say it's one thing, it's kind of also this other so yeah, just to see if I'm understanding mm. the Ryan version of the Derrida concept yeah. of ontology, in this cup economy example, would I be saying that judgments of apparent future use value can have an effect on present market value? Like that the my judgments about its future use value are haunting this transaction. Is that what's going on? I want to say, I don't know yet. <laughs> when you're trying to convince me, later when you use this cup, you will appreciate more and more how ergonomic the handle is and how it holds, it right. makes hot things hot and cold things cold. And it's so... It lasts a long time, and you can drop it, and your kid can throw it on the wall, and it'll be fine. So you're telling me about the future, right? As I'm going to be using it in all these myriad ways, mm -hmm. and that you want to alter my judgments about future use value, such that its present current market value is raised. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to tell you about yeah, it's it's potential. Um, but at the same time, how do I know that it has that potential? Am I... Well, you don't. That's why I keep saying you're trying to alter my judgments about apparent future use value. It doesn't have anything to do with no. But, is, I mean, my question is, is that what it means for the future to be haunting the present? I think for many of us, it's easier yeah. to do the past right. version. But yes, I think that's what it means. Yes. Okay. I think. <laughs> you come to the doddlers for at least I, there's value in that. I'll, I'll try and sell mm -hmm. the listener. Listen to this guy <laughs> is kind of into science. Talk about Derrida. This is funny. Um, there's also just the word it's to stay in the metaphysics before we head into other areas that I think are a little bit more tractable, at least to me. But um, hauntology, it's like in French, it's said the same way. Ontology, you know, they don't pronounce the H or whatever, you know, and so 
it's fun in that sense because it's its own, I think it's its own deconstruction in that it overturns the privileging of speech over writing. Then writing all of a sudden has a privilege over um, speech because there's an actual distinction between the two things and all the other things that they're supposed to relate to each other and whatnot. So hauntology is going to have its own set of things and ontology will have its own, you know, world of, I don't know. I don't want to say meaning, but let's just say that. So I think that's kind of a, that's something I just wanted to mention because it's fun. And all that Derrida's stuff is all really circular or a, you know, harboring within itself, kind of like just everything's kind of all sort of contained. What's that? Layers. Layers. Yes. Um, but also it's that holism style or whatever, um, Anyway, so uh, so the next part then is like, this is what I would think that you were trying to glean a little bit earlier. And I think I want, I want to call that like cultural hauntology, you know, or something like that, where we're talking about like people's psychological perspectives or maybe perceptions or whatever. They're the synthesis that they have about the world and <clears throat> they're using more of this temporal quality of, of things rather than just sort of the, the more ontological uh, version. And that's sort of, uh, to me, where the concept came from, because I, again, I'm just a numbnuts about shit like this. You being the more analytical philosopher and me being the more just like sciencey guy coming up upon this topic. Um, you know, this guy, Mark Fisher, is, I guess you could say is a, cultural critic or a critical theorist or cultural theorist. I don't know. They, they don't, ha they don't nail these things down for people. He's, he's sort of like a Zizek Mackenzie work style person, but, and he did teach, but he was also like, I think you could also just be like, he was a blogger and an author. He went by this blogger named K punk and, uh, he committed suicide. I think, I think it was 2017. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Um, but anyway, he had a book called Ghosts of My Life. And in that, he really explores the kind of changes that he, at least, was thinking were going on in the world. And he was, of course, referencing a lot of other people who had similar types of thoughts. So, and at this point, I actually kind of... <laughs> I will do this, damn it. So I hope you can hear me as I push back into the other room. So there's a few different kinds of concepts that he, in particular, was bringing together in his book, Book Ghosts of My Life. And in particular, I I keep saying the word particular, but um, the first real kind of chapter he calls Lost Futures is like, I think the real kind of synthetic part of this book other, otherwise, I think a lot of the other sections of the book or chapters or essays or whatever are kind of pulled from his blog or pieces that he had in actual magazines or whatever. So there's sort of, it's it's a bit of a menagerie of some of the things that he's done already, plus brought together by kind of an opening chapter of sorts. Anyway, um, he talks quite a bit about this guy... Um, Gosh, what's his name? Something Bifo Berardi, Franco Bifo Berardi, who had a book called After the Future. And this guy coined this phrase called the slow cancellation of the future. And it began in the 70s and 80s and all that kind of stuff. The idea of this sort of slow cancellation of the future, it pulls on the concept of anachronism, which uh, anachrony is essentially um, like where you have, you know, in, you could model it like discrete time periods, like we do decades, right? 70s, 80s, whatever. And there are particular, um, uh, if you're going to be an anthropologist or an archaeologist about this, you're going to talk about like, you know, dis you know, specific kinds of fashions or whatever kind of materialist uh, wares that people created 
at one time or versus another. And an anachronism would be where you take the fashions or whatever, the objects, uh, the things that were important to one point or period of time and kind of bring them into another time period, like the future or something like that. So this is like almost exclusively like once you get going on talking about examples of this stuff, it's just like, oh God, there's anachronisms everywhere. Like warming things up in the oven instead of a microwave, for example. There you go. Yeah. Cooking by the fire. Um, but yeah, and so this one's funny because it's like, well, what's the what's the exemplar for the anachronism or whatever? And I, I have not found one yet. Uh, but, you know, everybody seems to be able to talk about hauntology and at least cultural hauntology, anachrony, lost futures and stuff like that. Um, but uh, in particular, when it comes to like anachronism, um, if anyone out there has ever watched Twin Peaks or anything that David Lynch does, he often really likes to import the 1950s feel to his movies, even though they're still somewhat set in present day, but they give this feeling of, you're not quite sure what's happening. Um, that first Batman movie with Michael Keaton and um, Jack Nicholson had this sort of 1920s, 30s feel of like a New York city, you know, America kind of uh, thing but it was like, obviously, the technology that Batman and everybody used was incredibly uh, advanced or whatever you want to call it, relative to what the fashion sense of the film was, you know, the artistic license that people took. So that's sort of this idea of anachronism. And if you were to take anachronism into, you know, the culture and, and, and political and government and economy and all that kind of stuff, all those realms... Um, it begins to have what this guy, I think Berardi or Bernardi or whatever, Bifo, was talking about with respect to the slow cancellation of the future. The slow cancellation of the future was this idea that people were essentially losing ground on being able to come up with new ideas because, or new ways of expressing themselves. They were slowly losing ground on that because at least in the United States or in the Western civilization or Western society, there was an ever increasing squeeze of the middle class, say, you know, or, you know, the, the, the upper class having an impact on wanting more and more uh, wealth for themselves and less for others. So um, that's sort of the, I think the, the underlying, and this would be the social science thing, use of structure. That would be the underlying structure was, the increase in income inequality and things like that. I'm feeling the need to clarify. So concerning anachronism and the slow cancellation of the future, it's like previous time periods are overtaking each other until they achieve total overlap. Imagine that melody example again. Consider each note you hear to denote some kind of cultural change. As new changes come in, they come in faster. Finally, they are all overlapping. This roughly coincides historically with the trend reversals in the last turn of the secular cycling in the United States, as per Peter Turchin's work, who I've mentioned in a number of episodes in the past. Consequently, as the past becomes more and more central to cultural activities, across the Western world at least, any derivations of the past that would have happened don't, and those potential futures are lost. The past is privileged because little work, at least in my opinion, little work needs to be done to establish it for others to access. So short-term thinking is privileged over long-term thinking for fear of losing any more ground. For the lower classes, it's trying not to drown in debt. For the upper classes, it's trying to remain above their bottom line. Either way, there's a line everyone's trying to be on one side of. And this guy, Mark Fisher, who's sort of the cultural critic guy who essentially was primarily focused on popular music, um, he talked a lot about how, well, how else did we get these explosions, say, in uh, the punk movement or whatever? A lot of it had to do with the fact that 
people were squatting in empty homes and houses and stuff like that. Well, over time, they cracked down on that. And so, you know, there was less freedom to express yourself and just hang out and not pay rent and not have any money going out, really, and uh, just give you time to figure out how to do something artistically and whatnot. Well, that that just got narrower and narrower as we went from the 70s till now. And then there becomes this uh, looking, longing back towards the past when things were great and expressive and awesome and all that kind of stuff. And that then becomes like all the new technological advancements or whatever are sort of subservient to reviving those glory days, you know? And so that's sort of this sort of cultural hauntology aspect that relies, I think, quite a bit on anachronism. We're always bringing things back into the fold. I remember when I was a kid, my brother was really into comics, in particular like Marvel, more so than DC. And, you know, I remember thinking, wouldn't it be great, you know, if they ever made like live action movies, but we can't because we don't really have the technology to do it or whatever. And of course, now with Avengers and all that shit, X-Men and all those movies, Spider-Man, that has come to life. But I'm like, you know, older now and I really kind of don't care as much. And so there's a sort of, you know, uh, still this 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 uh, unexpected financial choice. No, it could be expected. Anyway, that people would say, well, let's just make Spider-Man because everybody likes Spider-Man, right? You know, and I don't know. Do people like Spider-Man? I mean, when I was a kid, we liked Spider-Man, but... You know, it's like that kind of, you don't know, like, oh, what are the, what are the kids into today? Well, the idea that Mark Fisher was talking about was that boomers, say, would be like super surprised at the notion that people were not focusing on like the latest sounds or whatever. And so they were all just like, wow, you know, uh, the past is so great. And I think we kind of talked a little bit about this with that Gilded Age thing that uh, that episode about the hustling past the graveyard where it's like, you know, the idea is like, oh, want a new idea? Read old books. You know, it's like, don't come up with your own shit. Just go find somebody else's thing and just bring that into the future or whatever. Bring that into the present or whatever. Um, so does that kind of ring at all with you a little bit? The idea of this sort of slow cancellation of the future that there's... People, everybody's now got to pay rent. Everybody's got to go to school or, you know, work and grind it out if they can find work. And everybody's in debt because they've got credit cards or whatever it is, school debt, et cetera, or they just don't have anything. And um, they're feeling uh, pressure to go out there in the world and succeed. And the experimentation and uh, more relaxed environment of a group of people trying to do something is, is really very difficult to do. I don't know. I was hearing maybe two things in there. One, a sort of... When you described it as a squeeze, just like... Uh, the, I suppose a way to put it would be retirement savings. Nobody is thinking about their future when it comes to economic choices. They're thinking about how am I going to get bread and stuff on the table tonight? So I don't need to decide what stocks to invest in or how many government bonds to purchase this month or what to do with all this surplus. I just need to concentrate on making it till tomorrow. And if you're doing that, the future is cancelled in the sense that you spend most of your time thinking about the present and not planning. But all you have in the present is more or less kind of the past, in a way. There's no... The present is just full of stuff from the from the glory days or whatever, from the old days. Um, I think that's the idea, anyway, is that we, we don't know where to go, so we're like, well, we'll just go to the past because that was successful and we'll just throw it in. So if you're an executive at some Hollywood studio or whatever, you're going to be like, well, let's just go back and find that thing. Or there's that whole uh, book and it's now a movie, the ready player one. It just is a big celebration of the past, you know, and, and there's the DeLorean and, um, you know, various pop culture references that, that go in that direction, as opposed to say, potentially the, what was that? The galaxy, the user's guide to the galaxy or whatever the fuck that, that was. The Hitchhiker's Guide? Yeah, something that might be more 
more future futury forward like isn't this peculiar isn't that peculiar you know kind of thing not familiar you know and the other thing that i thought i heard somewhere near the end of that was basically a rephrasing of the cliche there's nothing new under the sun type thing uh-huh there's it's all been done the more things that have been done the less new things are possible and eventually we will have done it all and exhausted all ideas or story structures or whatever. And then all you can do is make remakes of Gremlins and Back to the Future and what, and you can't come up with a new idea. Yeah. Um, which is, in a way, that's, you know, yeah, all you really have, I mean, or there's like an enhanced amount of nostalgia and there's... Um, yeah, there's this, there's, there's no time to think about what's coming up or whatever, or to experience it that way. There are lots of examples that Mark Fisher gave, of course. One of them was some band. I don't remember. They have a complicated name, but he was like, they could have been straight out of the old gray whistle test in 1981. The way the music sounded, the way the video was, you know, was, you know, edited and, you know, the cinematography or whatever that was used to show the graininess or the whatever. It literally was just essentially the past. And it was just today, you know, and this band or whatever they the name of that band was. We're just recreating, reviving, sort of revivalism and all that. Um, I kind of think personally it's real sad. It's not it's it's uh it's pretty disappointing. To an extent sort of uh, revivalism or love of the past can even be found like in ancient Rome, uh, especially towards the end of the Roman Republic. One of the things about all of this is that there's this sort of structure in it that has a lot to do with kind of class conflict. And so these slow cancellations of the future or these lost futures, you know, the, the, presents are haunted by the past and the sort of there's sort of almost with this this feeling of non-existent future uh has a lot to do with like i was saying before like there's some sort of economic and political uh struggle that's going on uh, income inequality etc and so um there's this historian by the name of timothy cornell and he has a paper that came out in 1991, which essentially talks about how in at the end of the Roman Republic, the city-state of the Republic's golden age kind of became a symbol for the political elites to sort of rally around as, you know, civil war and riots and all kinds of economic and civil strife were increasing, you know, more and more. And so they had this thing called Mos Maorum, um, which is sort of the moral code of the Republic's forefathers. And so they spoke about it in, you know, sort of a high praise. As a, and it was also a very kind of nostalgic thing. Like they were, they were like, oh, yes, the old days when we were, you know, morally up to speed and everything was wonderful. Where did it all go wrong? You know, that kind of thing. And so... Um, Anyway, I just thought that was kind of a an interesting tie-in that in other times in history that seems to also be present in other cultures like big well, famous ones like Rome. And what about as I'm told by some anthropologists the primitive religions were all about the ancestors, right? Yeah. Right. Religion itself is relying heavily on on past successes and oh if we could just you know, do as they say in the Bible and not let gays be in our military or whatever the fuck, right? People that aren't here anymore to ask questions sure seem wise. They never get anything wrong. Mm-mm. I hope to be one of them myself someday. Just don't listen to this podcast. Yeah, so that's the kind of stuff, you know, it's sort of that cultural hauntology that... I don't know. I find it kind of fascinating because it's this weird application of something that I think certainly was happening in Derrida's Specters of Marx lecture. He was essentially, I guess, saying something along the lines of that deconstruction has always been political. 
that's always been trying to say, no, we can't privilege, you know, it's about equality or whatever. It's like, you don't privilege one over the other because when we start to drill down, we have a hard time, at least he is saying this, we have a hard time deciding who's more important or whatever. There's, we start to lose meaning. We start to lose whatever the truth is supposed to be, that kind of stuff. Is he saying at any point, in a deconstructionist sense, we privilege the present? And that we, in some, would he ever argue we ought not? Because the past and future are in some sense equally important because the present is determined by them or, I mean, I guess, I assume he wouldn't like the word determined, influenced, haunted. Well, I think that's exactly what it is. And I think that in a way, the one thing I can't quite, I haven't landed on yet, but this, just the Einsteinian loaf or whatever, like, you know, everything's sort of a present, you know, and that it, it, it's situated relative to this or that or whatever. And that those things in lockstep with each other create whatever is going on. So you can't privilege one morsel in the fruitcake loaf over another because it's not, it's all just part of the loaf, you know, you probably need to tell our audience briefly what the loaf is. Well, we've mentioned it a few times, yeah, but I'll but mention they don't, it again. They don't listen to them all. The idea is just that, you know, um, if you're talking about time, uh, not being this fluid thing, but more just another uh, dimension, and that dimensions are just what they are, and we've got four dimensions, then you can consider one of the axes of, say, time, if you got rid of one of the quote-unquote spatial dimensions or whatever. Time could be just the, you know, the long thing of the, the long axis of the loaf, and that all that is really happening is that it's all just sort of one big chunk because why? Because God damn it, my head's in hauntology. Um, so, Hey, Hey, you over there, save me. My brain. Not good. <laughs> well, I forget. <laughs> I forget all these points this is too. A great, great episode. Um, but I, the general point of the, I think it was Brian Greene who coined the loaf metaphor for yeah, relativistic space-time as this, or it's we call it the loaf, other people call it the iron block universe, right? That all moments are have the an equal ontological status in the same sense that length and width and depth all have are interchangeable axes or what you know and none is privileged over the other it's all just your orientation toward it and that everything that we think is a present moving along a timeline is just an illusion of the way our nervous system works and that the way the universe is is just one big x-dimensional yeah static chunk deconstruction is very much i guess in a way, seems to me anyway, like relativity in that, you know, what you, your inertial frame and mine are going to be different. It's actually probably very similar in a way. Um, I imagine maybe somebody's already done this work and I just haven't found it yet or whatever. But the idea being that everybody has their own particular perspective on the world and that time can pass differently given whatever the conditions are for one person or observer or whatever you want to call it over another. And that how can then there be a universal time if we are all just sort of situated in our own way um, along that axis and that we experience time differently? De deconstruction, I think, would say that people would experience phrases and, you know, sit there and read a book, we'd experience it a little bit differently because we might be bringing in other things because it doesn't just have to be binary oppositional things that words that you read or phrases or concepts or ideas. There could be other lots of things coming in that are different for one person than for another. And because of that, you know, we end up having uh, just a different uh, experience or whatever of the, 
the book or we come up with different interpretations or we're theory laden by other theories or what have you, you know, that kind of thing. You're giving me like... <laughs> I don't know that that's deconstruction, but all of that makes perfect sense to me. And I think that's how interpretation any... I think there's an element of that in deconstruction, partly because of the... And this is just me talking, of course, but partly because of the way in which, you know, you can have a what he was calling a trace or whatever of another word, concept, whatever, that is present... It's absent, but present, you know, with the utterance or with the thought or with the reading or with the, you know, as as you go along, trying to understand what it is that you're bringing into your brain or whatever. And that, as I recall, there is an element of that, that sort of relativity quality, you know, no privileged Mm. inertial reference frame. I definitely like that part of that analogy. And if no one has written a dissertation on it yet, they probably ought to. Yeah. Likening the flattening, the non-privilege that Einsteinian relativity has in physics with Derridian hermeneutics or whatever, you know, textual interpretation and how we probably must, existentially must, but theoretically would prefer not to privilege concepts. Mm-hmm. So, is there anything else you wanted to... Uh, there, that's what I was about. To, is there anything else you had on your list? I have at least a question. I mean, if you have a question, then we can do that. I have one last little thing. Okay, so. yeah, do that first. Are you sure? Yep. Oh. Are you really sure? Because I think I want to end it on this last part. So there Okay, well, this is one of those, it's a, you know, ending type question, and it's one of those frustrating questions. Or when I'm asking them, I'm often frustrated. Oh, but whoa. This episode is about hauntology. And we've kind of tried to explicate what we think that might mean. What does adding that concept to my toolkit allow me to do that I couldn't do before listening to this episode? Like, what... I kind of understand it, not with high confidence, but what is it supposed to facilitate in my thinking? What does this concept do for us? As already inserted throughout this episode, I've found Derrida to be difficult to nail down. I see more clarity in others' explanations of his work, which for me is kind of a red flag. Wittgenstein is famous for this. Various philosophical camps have disagreed with each other's interpretations of his work. Thomas Kuhn is like this too, I think. Ah, the misunderstood. So Harlan, perhaps sensing an obfuscating fascia immersed in Derrida's texts, or in my presentation of them at least, basically asks, so what, why should I care? In one sense, there's something cyclic in hauntology, the repetition of always contending with the quote-unquote other. And in another sense, it asks its audience to hold more than one thing in mind. When It's funny, when I was in my many attempts to try and, you know, get the nuggets of this thing down for myself, going to original texts and going to derivative texts and translations and YouTube videos and all that kind of stuff. I noticed that that some people suggested that, you know, hey, it's a neat idea, but I don't need it. You know, that kind Mm -hmm. of like essentially kind of having more of a confident, assured statement about it. They weren't asked. They didn't bother to ask the question, I don't think. They were just like, yeah, it's okay, but, you know, what, what does it really matter, you know, in the long run? What's, what's the point of hauntology outside of a grandiose, it's everything kind of, right? And, you know, and I think there is some important thing about it, and I have come across it a number of times, and I'm going to try again. So hold on. Hold your britches, bitches. All right. 
I guess it comes down to this. Now that you know it, it seems to me like if you think about a lost future or the slow cancellation of the future, if this is a way in which to try and understand the world, and if you feel like that's it's somewhat of an accurate description of things that are occurring today, why why are we doing that? You know, why do we... It's funny, I've got multiple things to say to your answer now. It's hilarious. Why care, you know? And I think the idea is, well, being aware of something like that, like anything, should mean that if you don't like its outcomes or results or whatever, then you should get clever enough to find a way to circumvent it. Who wants to live in a world where nothing really changes, you know? that's Especially if it's a world where it's just the one top one-tenth of a one percent get all of the good stuff and everybody else suffers that seems like that sucks i don't want to live in that world and if ontology is a way to understand it then through understanding and learning about these things or using this model it might help glean some solutions for how to not keep doing it and to just you know make changes that you prefer to happen I think there's a reason why it's embedded with Marx and with the idea that there's a proletariat, there's a working class, there's people who uh, suffer unnecessarily, and that perhaps in a way that's that's the problem is that when we privilege one thing over another, we end up that ends up finding its way in all of our thinking, you know, and the way that we behave and the way that we place value on stuff. So I thought that Marx was more of a historical determinist, that there were these incorruptible paths and patterns that were going to play themselves out, no matter what any individual attempted to do. This will occur. Is the ontology concept provide for more room for agency and change and that somehow we can use our knowledge of the past and dreams of the future to guide our current behavior in some, like it increases freedom in the universe or something. Is that what you're saying? I would say, yeah, I would say anything like that could, uh, you know, increase the freedom in the universe or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly what you know, I, I can't really speak specifically to that shit with Derrida and mm-hmm. Marx. Um, sadly, I wish I could. And maybe but whatever at some thoughts point I will when I read further or whatever. But like, yeah. Okay, was there another one? Yep. All this stuff that one is doing with ontology, when you think of the melody example, um, for instance, to me, this just sounds like other things that maybe are a little bit more just hammered out in detail or, or whatever, you know, or just a little bit more concretized and maybe even a little more user friendly. I would say that what, what one is doing when they think about the example of the melody or whatever is what these guys, another French guy, Gilles Faulkner, and then a non French guy, Mark Turner, Maybe a mercenaire. Anyway, um, psychologist, social scientist. I don't know what the fuck they are. I don't. I can't remember. I read a lot. They have this idea called conceptual blending. And conceptual blending, the primary example, and I've given to you this to you before. It's the kind of it's the exemplar for them. Doesn't mean it's the only way to think about it, this, but it's just one way to think about it. And I want you to keep in mind, in addition to that, this sort of temporal quality of ontology with respect to the melody example. Whereas you have one note that is presently being hit into your eardrums or whatever, there are in your brain the memory of the previous note and the anticipation of the next, you know, the no longer and the not yet. It's a little riddle about a Buddhist monk. You remember this one? Oh shit! We'll see. Okay, this is a uh, a riddle from the I guess you could say political journalist Arthur Kessler. Um, 
he wrote a book called The Act of Creation. I think he's more famous for Darkness at Noon, which is a book. We're gonna we're gonna hold on. We can edit. You can get Knox. Knox, go to your couch. You almost wanted to bark at me. Harlan, this whole entire time, has been struggling with this giant hunk of chocolate named Knox. It hasn't bothered me, but I guess it has you. All right. Well, I mean, I'm distractible. Whatever. Anyway, he had this idea called uh, about this Buddhist monk thing. And this is kind of what, for Arthur Kessler, the political journalist guy, he thought, oh, this is kind of what creati- creativity is all about. Okay. So he has this little riddle called the Buddhist monk. Okay. A Buddhist monk begins at dawn one day, walking up a mountain, reaches the top at sunset, meditates at the tops for several days until one dawn when he begins to walk back to the foot of the mountain, which he reaches at sunset. Make no assumptions about his starting or stopping or about his pace during the trips. Riddle. Is there a place on the path that the monk occupies at the same hour of the day on the two separate journeys. Is there one, like, can I put a, like, hammer on a wooden trail marker anywhere on that path that at one eleven p.m. or, you know, any of any possible time that the guy is, you know, walking on the downward side of it once and on the upward side the other time, but he hits the same spot at some time on both days, with no assumptions about anything except dawn leaving and sunset arrival. I want to say no right away. Okay. Is that wrong? Yeah. Because it doesn't matter about like how fast they're moving. Somewhere on the path, the whole thing is that you're just taking two events and just putting them on top of each other. And you're like, the idea is you're supposed to be able to envision a person walking down and the same person walking up on the two separate days. And that's the whole point of this like exercise of conceptual blending that human lineage people, us, do, is we bring things together. And we can do it with the brains. Apparently Harlan can't, but that's you know neither here nor there. I get riddles and brain teasers and stuff wrong a shocking percentage of the time. <laughs> yeah. You're like, it took me 20 years to figure out And the then when hall. I do it, what I do is spend the next week trying to figure out how I was right after all. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> classic. Um, the idea is all you have to do is, the, the point of the thing is just envision the same guy on Tuesday walking up the thing and on whatever, fucking Friday, walking down. And just take those two movies. Right, like he's going to meet himself yeah. somewhere. And by definition, it's at the same time because he met. Is that the idea? The idea is, yeah, he just passed himself. And it's like you don't even need... All you have to do is envision a movie of a person walking up a hill and a movie of a person walking down a hill and somehow through the magic of cinema or whatever, just overlay them. And then like that's what you... The whole point of the thing is like, do that in your mind. Arthur Kessler, at least, is saying that is the act of creation that is that well, yeah, is the thing see, that's special so he said he was up there for a few days so now we've got sunrise and sunset are at different times because we're later in the year and when he's going downhill he just like hopped on a scooter and went so he left at dawn so let's say on the time he was coming down he just did it so fast that he hadn't even left to climb it anyway <laughs> that's what i'm saying i do that kind of stuff anyway well but all i'm trying to say is even if he met the fast guy coming down at like the foot of the mountain, that's fine. It doesn't matter where. It's just that somewhere, regardless of the pace, they start at the same time, you know, and then he's Superman at the top of the mountain. He's like, you know, like, or whatever. And he's just like, oh, you're, there I am, or whatever. Anyway, what's the point of this and how does it relate to ontology? Blending, the conceptual blending idea by this guy's Gilles Faulkner and Mech Tonier, um, Mark Turner is the you're taking two things and you're putting them together. And to me, when I think about the temporal aspects of hauntology, the when you're hearing the notes and you're got the whole melody, there's this there's a context that we think in, and it may not actually be simultaneous, but the 
perception, the view, the, the appreciation is there. It's all kind of together. And so if something's haunting another thing, to me, that just seems like you're just blending the things together. Now, conceptual blending is one thing, but you're taking the absent present of the previous note or whatever and putting it into, you know, a full picture, an appreciation of the melody itself, so that at any point along the, the, the notes of the melody, you can always have an appreciation of the whole thing. Like when that's why we call it a melody or whatever, like, you know, and that's why we just discretize them and say, okay, we're going to, and this, this is that thing. And we can appreciate multiple things coming together. And to me, all that conceptual blending is, it's cognitive combinatorialism. Dun, dun. That's something we do on this podcast many times. We always reference previous episodes, and once in a while we reference future episodes, uh, which Ryan just did. Ontology. Cognitive combinatorialism reminds us of a future episode. So, yeah, this podcast has been thoroughly haunted its entire existence. <laughs> <laughs>